Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief critic. Joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Ann Thompson, out in Los Angeles. And and we have award season stuff to talk about, even if we're not in the mix of some bigger developments. But there's been a lot of small stuff going on in the foreign language category, which I think personally is more exciting because there's it's more a strong movie. year it's so i mean we just came off the festival so what we didn't see in Cannes, we could catch up with and and now i've caught i i finally saw border the swedish entry which is one of the weirdest most lanthimosian movies i've seen in a long time i enjoyed it it's going to be coming out from uh, neon I love that you can describe something as Lanthimosian. <laughs> You've come so far in this podcast. Oh, please. I always liked Lanthimos. You just like giving me a hard time. Well, yeah. but that movie is so wild, too. Borders, this crazy kind of, you know, uh, gender-swapping kind of fairy tale of sorts that really catches people off guard, but it's so well done. He's playing around with all the mythologies of uh, trolls, and in putting these actors in heavy makeup and giving us rules of, of how they, you know, uh, play as it were. And I don't want to spoil it because it's such a great movie to watch unfold. It's sort of jaw dropping in a way. So there's that. We've got uh, this movie, Girl from, uh, where is that? Belgium. Uh, Belgium. Lucas Daunt. Another and that's the, one of the films that uh, Netflix picked up at the end of Cannes after they had been left out of the, you know, after they pulled out of the uh, uh, participating in, in, you know what I keep thinking about, Eric? I think about Roma. If Roma had played Cannes, now that we've seen well, the movie, it would have won the Palme d'Or, hands down. Easy. It would have easily won the Palme. It could not have been denied. But, you know, know it would have been interesting, too, because then it would have, it would have been, sort of out of the conversation for a while and reintroduced. It seems like it's be better suited in some ways to kind of be the film of the fall, right? What now. they did very consciously, and of course we know that there's a whole team of people working on uh, the award strategy at Netflix, not only for um, the Oscars, but for the Emmys. So it, it, Netflix ended up coming in exactly equal. I think it was 23 Emmys with, with, um, with uh, HBO. And uh, they were, and on Emmy night, uh, Ted Sarandos was grinning from ear to ear, shit eating grin. He yeah. was so happy. So basically the same team. Uh, has been working on on getting wins across the board, and uh, obviously that's part of Netflix's overall strategy. And Romo has played every festival, every yeah. single one. It's even going to lots of the regional festivals, the small festivals, because because it they want people to see it. And and uh, being Mexico's submission, I mean, in another year, if, if Roma wasn't here, it would be Museo, which is a, a very solid, entertaining heist movie, basically. But Roma's, I mean, it's like, it's obviously got this in the bag, right? I mean, it's just hard. I, all these. Other I don't see how anything could beat it. I really, I really don't. But let's look at some of the the candidates because what's been going on is that the different countries have finally 
you know, they've had their short lists and they have their various arcane ways of picking uh, films, the different committees that they have. I mean, we knew that Columbia would be Birds of Passage, uh, which The Orchard is going to release, Ciro Guerra's movie, which I liked very, very much. Um, I'll be, I mean, they did get a nomination for Embrace of the Serpent, but I, I'll, I'll be curious to see if this uh, co-directed, by the way, with his ex-wife. So we'll see how that goes. Very involving movie and this dramatic um, look at the kind of roots of the Colombian drug war. But it's but it's also it's a difficult sit for you know, partly of- because of the structure. He does one of these chapter things, and sometimes that's counterproductive. If you've got chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, well, you get to the end and there's another chapter. You go, right. uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little because there are some amazing sequences. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And the and and, and uh, the co-director uh, very much was involved in working with the women and the indigenous people in the movie. And and there's some powerful performances uh, in this movie that that uh, he managed. They they managed to to elicit. Um, then you well, so girl. We were talking about girl. That movie uh, is a transgender story about uh, a dancer, um, which I still have to see. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think the performance is more impressive than the film itself. So I wouldn't put too much weight on that movie per se, although I know it got the boost from Telluride and it's got some bigger fans than me. I'd be more curious to see how The Guilty fares. That's a movie from Denmark that Magnolia picked up and is a very involving kind of kind of one room thriller, a chamber piece of sorts. It's very it, impressive. It reminds me of um, of that movie that uh, Steve Knight did with Tom Hardy, where he's trapped in a car and everything is has to do with the different conversations that he's having with a growing intensity and all the information that's being withheld. So this is a similar thing where you have a cop with a headset who, where all these things are going on off frame and you hear them and you're listening and you're imagining and it's very powerful and it's a great performance by this guy. Is it the typical sort of emotionally moving kind of movie that the, uh, which Roma is by the way, uh, which the um, Oscar Academy voters tend to go for? I'm not sure, Capernaum might be that movie from uh, Lebanon, from Nadine Labaki. That's much more of a tearjerker that gets you all worked up. It's a slumdog millionaire-esque kind of drama of sorts in the sense that it, it deals with kind of somebody coming out of poverty and sort of rising up beyond that, those struggles. And It's a great little kid at the center of it who's forced to be uh, a caretaker of a little baby and and the mother is, is removed from the picture and you have this poor kid trying to to keep keep charge. Of and then the baby. other one that was at Cannes that, that got an interesting boost from the festival was Yomadine from Egypt, which is the Egyptian submission. And I loved a- this movie. It was a first time filmmaker and his producer wife uh, who fell in love in the course of the movie. Um, and it's, it, it's a similar movie to Capernaum. It's, a, it's, it's, it's about a leper who goes on the road to find his parents. I haven't seen The Cake Maker from Israel, which is uh, which won the Ophir, so it's the submission, and Strand is going to be picking that up. But the other one that we, the, I mean, there was actually a lot of can this year and a year that, that people thought was low profile. It certainly did produce a lot of foreign language 
contenders. You got Shoplifters from Japan, which won the Palme d'Or. And that's a movie that people are really going to love when they get to see it. Absolutely. I love that film. So it's actually a very competitive category, even if Roma seems to be this domineering force. And I wonder how the conversation is going to evolve around that if Roma also becomes such a prominent Best Picture candidate. Do people think, well, it's going to win Best Picture? I'll vote for something else in this category. Could that be used as a campaign tactic? You never know with uh, with the, I would say, it's going to get nominated. It's going to get shortlisted. Um, it's going to win. I mean, I don't see how you take it away. Opening night at, at Cannes was, uh, everybody knows, with um, uh, the Asghar Farhadi Spanish language movie with Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem. And that is not the Iranian entry, nor is it the Spanish entry. Yeah, it kind of got screwed by both places, which is interesting. So it's not in the race at all. I mean, it'll open here. And it's a, it's a, actually something of a crowd pleaser, so I'm sure it'll do really well. But uh, it's not going to get any boost from the Oscars. Yeah, and it's, it's not the kind of movie that that was the category where it could have had a shot at being a part of this conversation. Right. I, I really enjoyed it, but it's it's not for everybody. It's it's got a sort of soapy quality to the plot, and you know, it divided people. It can so so that's that's kind of it for that movie. I, I also want to talk about the documentary race because Free Solo is opening next week, and I have had a few encounters with this movie over the past week. I moderated twice. What a what a masochist you are. <laughs> no, it's 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 just as anxiety inducing. <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. But I really enjoy that. I mean, it's a testament to the, how involving the filmmaking is. And I think that's what's kind of interesting about this film. I also moderated an Academy Q&A in New York where, where people were, you know, just all over the place, of, you know, with the ways in which they enjoyed the film. I mean, from the filmmaking to the psychology of, of Alex Honnold and why he would climb um, something like El Capitan without a rope. And just talking to people at the a very flashy New York premiere uh, National Geographic obviously paid a lot of money for this Columbus Circle party, and there was a cake that was shaped like El Capitan that they had designed and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of muscle behind this film, and it really people come out of it talking about the filmmaking itself. So prior to this film, we were saying how over the summer, RGB and Won't You Be My Neighbor had all this weight behind them. And it's not like Won't You Be My Neighbor especially isn't a movie that people are deeply affected by. But to me, Free Solo is a film that has a much bigger impact in terms of how people talk about it, the craft of the well, film. Well, there is a film that could possibly, possibly challenge the other ones. So that would be good. Um, because it because has a visceral impact on uh, the viewer. And, and of course, um, Jimmy Chin, who's this extraordinary mountaineer who knows how to use these cameras and position them and put them in the right place. And of course, all of his camera people are mountaineers too. They edited together the rehearsal footage, and the, which is with ropes. So that if you have a close-up of the guy's foot on this tiny, minuscule piece of rock covering there where he has to reach over and grab this other thing, there are these two big moments in the climb that are so dangerous. Those, that's, that close-up comes from the rehearsal, not because yeah. they couldn't get too close while he was climbing. Yeah, no, they plotted it out really well. But, I mean, it's worth noting, Jimmy Chin co-directed this with Chai Versaheli, and she is not a climber. And you can kind of feel that. I mean, when I was watching it the second time, one of the things that I was really processing was 
how much more of the movie there is beyond the crime that you it really is to some degree a romance about this guy's relationship to his girlfriend who he started dating while they were shooting the movie and he's always he's always kind of said and he says in the movie that you know climbing is more important to him than any relationship with some girl and that's sort of called into whoa there's something happening there there was just a loud noise. Yeah, I, I was trying to protect the mic because oh. the blower is back. Should we give him a minute? Can you hear it? Yeah, some of it will be on the audio, but that's okay. Oh, now it's gone. All right. So it's sort of a romance with this guy. You know, you're not, to some degree, his commitment is challenged by uh, the question of whether or not climbing is more important to him than his partner and and i think that part of the filmmaking is very well done in addition to what they've done with the climb itself and that's that really stood out to me the second time around is that the craftsmanship on in terms of how this film is assembled really works all across the board i also really love won't you be my neighbor and of course that's the thing that's annoying about award season is these films shouldn't be compared at all in some well way. three but, identical strangers is in there there's a Hulu film called Crime and Punishment, which is moving up in the race as well. Um, there are a lot of, of, of movies that are starting to be seen. I mean, the, uh, the easy lobs are the movies that you know that everyone has seen, and Free Solo will be one of those movies. Everyone will see it. But there are a lot of other films that the people on the committee are going to look at and, and choose from. And um, let's not forget that there is a new Michael Moore movie opening this week for whatever that's worth. I'm really curious to see uh, whether that uh, ends up being a factor. Um, uh, I liked the movie. I, I really I saw it in Toronto on opening night and it was fun to see it with this sort of roused Canadian crowd, you know, which is sort of the friendliest crowd Michael Moore will ever have. But um, it's it's uh, we're 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 running all sorts of stories about Michael Moore in IndieWire right yeah, now. We're not well, just writing about Fahrenheit 11.9, which, by the way, is getting better reviews than the first one. Yeah, well, I didn't go back and do a close read. I mean, I think that. Fahrenheit 11.9 is compelling on some level, even if it's not always particularly cohesive, because it's almost like an acknowledgement on Moore's part that a lot of this kind of, the, the, his generation and the tactics that he has employed as an activist have not been effective at stopping what's been festering for a long time and allowed Trump to become a president. And he's sort of eventually ceding control of the movie on some level to a new breed of people, the, the kind of, you know, the, yes, he's passing the baton to a younger generation, yeah. but he has a very strong belief that the left of the democratic party and not the center is the future of the democratic party. He's very much of a Bernie Sanders, anti Hillary Clinton, anti Obama, uh, position, uh, which right. is sort of interesting. And I'm not sure I believe that he's right. But if he believes that that vast number of people that didn't vote last time, that they're left of center, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I mean, he's and he's not wrong in the sense that, at least for the time being, the far left seems to be the most compelling narrative uh, for for the left as a whole because the older Democratic Party has been known to compromise more often and the GOP doesn't compromise, so the Democrats are losing. 
And that's something that's well, we don't know that. We don't well, know that until the midterms. They, they when have we get to until now. And that's well, and there's another narrative, which is that the the election was hijacked by the Russians and, and that Donald Trump doesn't represent a fair election at all. Yeah, he doesn't get into that so much, which I kind of appreciate because it's sort of like, look, you can the more information is gonna keep coming out about that stuff and you can dwell on it because it is important to, to think about it, especially given what Mueller is investigating, but to make a movie about it now, it would become dated very quickly. And no, more he, he focuses on Flint, Michigan, and he focuses yeah. on uh, the West Virginia school strike for the, for the teachers, and he focuses on, on the Parkland kids. Um, right. That's very much the stories that he's telling. So it's, it's, narrative. It's, I, I think people should see it. It's an intriguing movie. It's an entertaining movie. Is it a great movie? No, but if you respond to Michael Moore, you'll get something out of it, no question. I am sort of curious about how it'll do commercially. I guess it's not an Oscar movie. It's sort of a, it's a tricky sell on that front. But the other story that's been reported that Leonard Maltin brought up and which our reporter, Chris O'Fault, uh, tracked down is the story of how <clears throat> the Traverse City Film Festival is in uh, financial difficulty and in the course of, of trying to you know, maneuver in that situation, Michael Moore has been not paying his bills, including a reputable uh, theater, uh, the guy who goes in and builds the theaters and, and takes care of, of the screens uh, for a lot of festivals, including yeah. Ride. And uh, a very reputable guy and they're not paying him. Yeah, it's this guy Chapin Cutler from Boston Light and Sound, and and Moore supposedly said some nasty stuff about him at a, at a town hall. There's been all this dirty stuff going on, or messy stuff going on with the with in Traverse City with the film festival. Moore runs there. They had a guy named Joe Byer who came there from Sundance and lasted three weeks in the job running the festival. I went there and I saw how hard the people worked uh, and they were all working around this sort of whirling dervish Michael Moore who, you know, it's his festival. He's he's the Redford of it or the De Niro of it. If you look at Sundance and Tribeca, he's the celebrity at its center who draws all the attention, but he's also the, the little emperor there, you know, and everybody was running at his beck and call. And, um, and I watched it in action and, and I saw how hard they tried to keep up with him and all of his changes of direction and, and, um, and, uh, you know, impulsive, uh, you know, active, uh, changes, you know, he's not, he's not easy to, to work with. So speaking of alpha male filmmaker types, there is a new Julian Schnabel movie coming out. <laughs> I, I just, the, as soon as you said that, I was like, I know the transition. <laughs> Let's get off of my Gomer. All right. At Eternity's Great is, is I finally saw it and I, I loved it. I loved it. I, I liked it. I mean, I think what's really impressive about it is that similar to what Schnabel did with Diving Bell and the Butterfly, this is a movie that is very much about this internalized experience. Like you almost feel like you're inside uh, Van Gogh's headspace through this obviously impressive Willem Dafoe performance, just in terms of the, the colors and the, the way the movie is this very 
quiet progression and gets inside his mental illness as well without trying to tell some broader narrative because there have been other Van Gogh movies. People know this story. We know the story well and in a funny way that helps us because we kind of know what what the what the t- the big moments are and they come. You know, there is a Theo, there 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 are people that he's painted in the town. There are kids who jeer at him and throw rocks at him. And you see why. And you, but what what Schnabel does, which I found so extraordinary, is is this point of view camera, and showing the kind of bliss that the artist experiences while he's communing with nature. And in a series of conversations with Paul Gauguin, who's played very well by Oscar Isaac, and with a priest played by Mads Mikkelsen who doesn't necessarily get his painting or understand him as an artist or anything, but is just trying to understand his mind. When he's talking to someone really smart, there's a a philosophical conversation about what art means to him and what being close to nature means to him. And the idea that you could present something now that is not going to be accepted by your peers, but might be accepted later on yeah. which is of course what happened I, Willem Dafoe moved me it's an effective movie I, I think it's it's certainly not for everyone it's an it's very experimental in terms of what a way that it progresses through this story and, and like you said I mean having a working knowledge of Van Gogh does make a difference so I'm curious to see what kind of a life this movie has this fall it's a closing night entry at New York Film Festival which is a good fit for that festival especially, but uh, CBS Films is putting it out this year. I, I have to assume Defoe will be a major best actor. I think so. I mean, I he's got this so. momentum from last year in the Absolutely but. right. People, no, people, and you know what performance it reminds me of, which isn't um, a big shock? It reminds me of The Last Temptation of Christ. It reminds me of that performance, that kind of throwback. He has these blue eyes that, and, and this sort of transparency, goodness to him um, that, that uh, serves him very well in this situation. And it's a, it's a difficult performance. I, people may criticize some of the camera work. He, um, Schnabel does some very strange uh, things with lenses and blurry uh, images. What did you think of that? Well, I think it's it's sometimes it's a little annoying, but for the most part, it it's pretty effective because the the most dramatic camera work often has to do with angles on Van Gogh's face. There's a, there's a shot there are shots that where the camera kind of turns to the side or it's very low and sort of like a canted angle kind of a thing, or these Dutch angles, and, and it's it's interesting because it does give you a sense of the disorienting quality of his you know, subjectivity. Well, it's trying to show his madness. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's not in, in, in the kind of way in which he's, how that madness manifests itself in his painting, essentially. So I, I, that didn't bother me so much. It's an art film. There's no question. I don't think it's a mainstream play at right. all. But I would imagine with support from the critics uh, that it will go far um, in that realm. So you'll get a chance to kind of survey the scene when you're in town for uh, New York Film Festival. I'm going to come in for the closing. I'm going to come in for the end. I'm going to talk to Defoe um, and uh, just uh, be there for the for the closing night. I'm looking forward. So before you get to that point, there is another film festival on the calendar, the Los Angeles 
Film Festival is happening now? Yes, it opened last night with a movie called Echo in the Canyon, which is a world premiere. It's a documentary that's an acquisitions title being sold by a Submarine. Um, it's an interesting doc because it's a first-time filmmaker who's um, Andrew Slater, who's a, a record executive. He worked at Capitol, and he got together with Jacob Dylan, son of Bob, who's a musician in his own right, and has put on a bunch of concerts honoring the music uh, of the Laurel Canyon rock scene of the 70s. And he, he does the Mamas and the Papas. And Michelle Phillips is in the film. She's hilarious. She's a hoot. Talking about all the affairs she had. <laughs> you know, she she didn't uh, follow the rules uh, at all. And uh, and neither did the men. So why not have the woman be just as, as free with her uh, sexuality as, as they were? But it's there are a lot of interviews with people like Jackson Brown and and Tom Petty right before uh, he died and uh, 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 David Crosby and Graham Nash. Uh, Joni Mitchell's not in it. Uh, she obviously did not cooperate. Um, and then Jacob uh, Dylan puts on uh, a series of uh, in-studio and um, in-theater concerts uh, with a bunch of musicians, including uh, um uh, Fiona Apple and uh, others uh, uh, and Beck, uh, you know, putting on a concert. So uh, there's all sorts of things in this movie that are fun and the archives are great and it's 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 a great piece of history and I loved a lot of the interviews. But Jacob himself is an interesting presence in it because you know that the movie wouldn't exist if he hadn't had long-term affectionate relationships with all these people who cooperate, you know, Ringo Starr cooperated, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it sounds like they found a decent movie to open this festival with. I know we were skeptical a little bit when we heard about the lineup, about how any of these movies were going to play. So. Apparently sales are up. Um, Michael Nordine put up a story with a bunch of movies that look like they might be worth seeing, including... Um, uh, the first film version of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is one of my favorite books. Um, and and there's uh, there Border is playing and Free Solo is playing. And uh, some of these festival films are, are uh, they put in at the last minute, uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, the Melissa McCarthy movie that took off out of Telluride and Toronto. So, uh, you know, their, their sales are up. Uh, apparently they can play to all the colleges in the fall and get a different kind of audience going. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how they do. So next week we can uh, reconvene. You can do a little bit of a recap if you got a chance to see anything there. And maybe we'll take a look at the box office, see how some of these other major fall movies that are starting to creep in the theaters are performing. But until then, I hope you're getting a chance to appreciate this somewhat quieter period because as we both... The know, word quiet is not applying to where I am right it's now. It's all relative. It's all relative. In any case, rest up if you can. Thanks. Bye. Bye.